especially in the beginning, you've got three top editors on top of you with different colored pens. Hello, welcome back to Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, parenthood, and marriage. I'm Barry Liga, and with me is not Morgan Baden. Morgan, as many of you know, if you listened to the last couple of weeks, is at a writing conference this weekend. So we have our special guest, Melissa Walker. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Barry. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Great. So you are the author of, let's let's let people know, Violet on the Runway. Oh my gosh. Violet on the Runway, Violet by Design and Violet in Private, uh, Love Struck Summer, Small Town Sinners, Unbreak My Heart, Ashes to Ashes, Dust to Dust, and the upcoming middle grade, Let's Pretend We Never Met. Wow. Okay, great. That's a, a wonderful roster there. So I wanted to talk, now we, we've got your, your list of books out of the way, but you didn't start as a novelist. You got into this industry in a very different way than I did. I mean, I wrote a book and I got it published. That's the short version. It wasn't that easy, but that's how I did it. Talk about how you got in, because this is really interesting to me. Sure. Um, I worked in magazines. And so when I ended up at a teen magazine, I edited a books page and I started reading a lot of YA. I worked at L Girl, which was the young version of L. And I read a lot of YA. I started to really, really love it. And I thought, huh, maybe I could do this. So I emailed a writer of mine who had written some way, Carolyn Mackler, and she immediately told me, oh, there's this imprint at Penguin that's looking for more YA. You should get in touch with this editor over there. So I did. And I sent her a one-page synopsis of an idea, and she said, this is great. Show me some of the book. And I said, oh, I haven't written. (laughs) I haven't written anything. I haven't written any of the book. And she said, well, that's part of the process. So (laughs) why don't you sit down and write a little bit and then show that to me? And so... I did. Um, I wrote a couple chapters. I sent them to her and I sort of expected her to say, give me some notes or some feedback. And I was grateful to have her ear, but she came back and said, okay, great. Let's do two books. Here's your contract. Let's go. So you didn't even have an agent yet. I didn't have an agent. I did have a long background in teen magazines. So I had a lot of published clips. I had like years under my belt of writing. So I don't want to say like, I just came out of nowhere, Right. but I had never written a book, certainly. And I thought, oh my gosh, how does she trust to know that I would finish this? And I thought, am I going to finish this? And what am I doing here? (laughs) So um, she gave me the offer. I got nervous. uh, And I said, you know, I think I need to find an agent. I just felt like I needed someone to guide me and hold my hand a little bit. So she said, okay, I'll leave the offer on the table for two weeks. And I went and emailed anyone I knew who'd ever written a book and said, do you like your agent? And if so, may I meet them? I have this offer from Penguin. And that is very helpful when looking for an agent. Yeah. (laughs) Having an offer. So um, I talked to three different agents and I ended up really clicking with Doug Stewart at Sterling Lord. I felt like he really got the book, uh, even though there were only a couple chapters. And I liked the other books that he'd represented. And I just felt really comfortable with him. So I went with him and he called Penguin. And here's the great thing about agents. They doubled their offer instantly as soon as I had one. Yep. Yep. So, you know, everyone who says, oh, I don't want them to take their 15%. It's It's like. It's worth it. Because they're taking 15% of so much more than you would have gotten in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And um, 
And he said, you know, that's still not quite what we need. And so we took it out and we got another offer. Um, and we did end up going with Penguin in the end. And we did three books with them, the Violet series. So cool. that's how it all started. But how did you get into magazines? I'm curious about this. And you still do a lot of freelancing for various magazines. And I'm just wondering, because we talked a couple of weeks ago on the show about pitching versus blogging and, and, and that sort of thing. So I'm as somebody who has had zero success in that area, how did, how did that happen for you? Well, I was the editor of my high school yearbook. Um, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it all begins with the with, with high school. Damn it. That's where I went wrong. Um, I had always been writing and editing in some way. And I worked on my college newspaper. And when I everyone was starting to try to get an internship, my dream internship was at a magazine. And it was because I had loved sassy in the 90s which i think is a lot of magazine writers my age story is that sassy was this kind of revolutionary thing and uh we all loved it and we all dreamed of working there sassy was no longer around but i i applied to every magazine i could and this was back in the day when i looked through a book and found an address and wrote a letter Kids these days don't understand. Like, you had to get, like, the writer's guide or the the writer's market or the novel and short story writer's market, and you had to to page through those things. And by the time you got the book, it was already out of date. Totally. So you were, like, like putting stuff in the mail to people, and then you'd hear back six months later saying, that person isn't here any longer, and we've changed our focus to this now, so you're crazy. Yeah, it's such a different world now. And this was such a lucky thing because it was actually a Peterson's Guide to Internships, and, of course, it was out of date, and I mailed it to an address where the magazine was no longer, but it somehow got forwarded and it landed on the right, in the right pile. And I got called in for an interview and I went in and interviewed at McCall's magazine, which is also no longer around. And I just think that I expressed enough enthusiasm and they hired me for the summer. So I got to spend my first summer in New York city living at the NYU dorms and I actually even made money. I think I made six twenty-five an hour well, at my internship, hey. which was awesome. That's great. Um, and that was the summer that started it all. And I just clicked right away with the magazine world. I loved it. I love. I mean, I loved opening reader mail. I loved yeah. the worst of it. So I knew I would love the best of it. That's cool. That's great. Okay, so that's how. There you go. That's that's how that's how you do it. It start. You got to start in high school, apparently. But but the fact that you did the stuff in college and the internship and everything that all makes that all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, the internship definitely led to everything else. I kept in touch with everybody, and by the time I started working as a staff member, I then started writing for other magazines, and that's how the freelancing career started. Right. It's much easier to start from. Oh, I have a staff position at this magazine, so I get what you need in a pitch, and yeah. you know. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about parenthood before we move into some some writing stuff. So when we have guests on this show, they can't just be writers; they also have to be parents because that's what this show is about. So you are our third guest, but you're the only one to have more than one child. Oh. You have two kids. Yes. First of all, are you crazy? Second of all, how do you deal with that? I mean, I know how difficult it is for me to get any writing done with one. How do you accomplish anything when you have two? Well, luckily, by the time the second one came along, the first one was starting preschool. And so she had some hours where she was out of the house for the day. Um, And we do have a babysitter in the mornings for our second one. I always planned this lifestyle where 
I thought, okay, I'm a freelance writer. I have flexible hours. I will be able to write half a day and then be home with my kids for the second half. And it felt like it was the best of both worlds and that it was going to be this beautiful thing. And it is on some days, but on some days it feels like I got nothing done in yeah. either world and I'm failing at everything. So, cause I've noticed that, I mean, you know, Morgan's mom comes twice a week to look after Leia while I try to do things. And what I've noticed is there are weeks where it doesn't matter that she's here. There are things I have to do that I can't get done when I'm watching Leia. So those two days that my mother-in-law is here, I'm running off to a doctor's appointment or taking care of something at the bank or doing whatever it is that I have to do. And the next thing you know, the day is gone and I haven't gotten any writing done, but I've gotten a bunch of life things done as if life matters. And I mean, so it sounds like that's similar to you. Like you're thinking, Oh, I have the whole you know morning to get work done. And Suddenly it's noon and you haven't gotten anything done. Right. And if I want to do, if I want to exercise or right, yeah, go I to the gym, like, yeah. see a friend for a coffee, that really yep. takes up the whole time. Right. And it's interesting because I thought to, when I, before I had kids, I thought, oh, I'm not one of those writers with like, who needs all this time and has a craft. I just sit down and I write yeah. and I only write for two hours a day. So that's all I need really is two hours a day. But what I didn't understand was that I used to roll out of bed go to yoga, walk back, get my iced coffee, walk through the park back to my apartment, sit down on the stoop, watch people go by, and then bring out my laptop and gently place it on my lap and start writing. Okay, great. To me, that felt like, well, I started writing at 10 and I stopped at noon and that's all the time I needed to work. No, but you I needed, needed that time before. All that dreamy yep. time to get me into the place where I could write. And now it's like, oh, I get two kids out of the house in the morning. I'm getting like breakfast and does my husband have a meeting and what am I doing? And then now here's your laptop. Go. Right. And I'm like, I just want to take a nap. Yeah. No, there are days, you know, usually Leia will take a, a two hour nap in the afternoon. Uh, I go to the gym. When I come back from the gym, I put her down in the crib and she'll nap for about two hours fairly reliably. And I always think that two hours, that's a lot of time. You can get a lot of work done in two hours. But by the time I've gotten out of the shower, eaten lunch, you know, dealt with whatever emails have come up in the first half of the day, it's only an hour left. And at that point, I'm just like, I just want to sit on the sofa and not think and not use my brain and not do anything at all. So I, I don't know if there's a trick to forcing yourself to use that time. But if there is, I would like somebody to explain it to me so that I can do it. Well, I have to say that something you guys said on an earlier podcast has resonated with me, and that is when you guys were talking about having 10 minutes yeah. instead of thinking, ugh, 10 minutes, right. I, I can do nothing. Let me just answer this email right. saying, okay, I have 10 minutes to write and just doing it. Um, I've taken advantage of that a little bit. That yeah. was great advice. And the other thing that I'm doing right now, I'm in the middle of a draft of a middle grade, and... I'm doing these 90 minute write sprints, which I just kind of announce on Twitter to mm -hmm. no one, but just for myself to keep myself honest. And then I turn all the internet off for 90 minutes and I write. And sometimes I write for half an hour of that 90 minutes and I kind of twiddle for the other, but it's all part of writing and you know, that's important. Anything you can get done is important. And I think we've talked on the show before about the Pomodoro method that I use a lot, which is where you work for 25 minutes, then you take a five minute break, then 25. And you do that, you do that, uh, four times and then you take a half hour break and then you go back and you do it again. And what I've found is I will say to myself, all right, I'm just going to do the 25 minutes. 
You know, that's that's all I can do right now is the 25 minutes. And even then you get a lot done. And a lot of times what happens is I do the 25 minutes, take my five minute break. And then I'm like, you know what? I can go do another 25 and I end up getting more done. Yesterday, for example, Leia wanted her nap early. She woke up really early. She was really tired. So I canceled the gym and I put her down early, which throws my whole day off. Cause my whole day is she goes to, we go to the gym at a certain time. We come back, she takes her nap. Everything is, is regimented and set up and she does. She must've lost the schedule. Like maybe her iCloud account got erased. It's not on her phone anymore. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, she wanted to go down early and I'm sitting here and I'm like, well, I can't go to the gym. It's too early for lunch. What the hell am I going to do? So I actually came into the office and I worked and it actually felt really good to, to do that while she was, while she was napping. So it's something where I, I just need to get back to that because otherwise I'm just not going to get anything done. And yeah. especially as we move, the move is going to take up all kinds of time, which I actually want to talk about because we said last week that we are moving out of the city, um, to the, to the wilds of New Jersey. And uh, part of that is because we have a very small apartment and we have a child and we need more room and blah, 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 blah. You've got two kids. You're staying. You're not going anywhere. Talk about that. Oh, I mean, so far we're staying and I, and I feel like we really want to stay. Um, we have a small apartment. Also, we have a two bedroom apartment. So the girls share a room, which is hit and miss. And we just, we just love it here. I mean, I just, there's something about Brooklyn that I really love and I, you know, I, I listened to your podcast last week and I heard all the disadvantages and I understand every single one. And, and yet I, you know, it was a really tough call for me. I, it, it was not a tough call for Morgan at all. I mean, I love it here and I understand the disadvantages. Um, they get to me sometimes too. I mean, they get to all of us. I mean, everybody who lives here at some point is like, I hate this place. I want to leave. Um, but it really, it just became a situation where, you know, the, the decision was made. Um, but how, I mean, how do you see that developing, especially as your kids get older and they need a little more space? Um, well, you know, and I don't, I don't want to lock us into any plan. I feel like we're a little bit fluid about what we're going to do, yeah. but I think right now, and this changes week to week, believe me, but right now we're feeling good about our apartment and making it work. And we really love the school that our daughter's going to go to next year, which is a really big plus. But I also, I think that we would love to save money and get a mountain house or a beach house, you know, a small You mean like a mountain? House. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, like, like a supervillain lair? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Okay. Underneath the even, back cave. Even if that's not the case, let me think that that's what you're doing. <laughs> that would be pretty magical. Yeah. Because um, no, I know Costco's your husband and I know your daughter, and I think they'd both be into that. <laughs> they would very much be into that. Um, no, like a house in the Catskills, something right. like that, where we'd have a little more space. We could just kind of escape up there if right. one things felt too small. Um, and that would be a lot more budget friendly, honestly, than moving up to the next level of house. Oh, cause the price, the costs in Brooklyn are insane. They're and, insane. and people who live outside the city may not know this, but not only are the prices ridiculous, but you can't get a mortgage. Like it's a cash market, you know? So if there's a $3 million place that you want, and that's probably an average price, there, if there's a $3 million place that you want, it's not like, oh, let me scrape together, you know, $600,000 for a down payment. No, they want a check for $3 million. They don't, they don't want to deal with a mortgage. So yeah, it's, it's nearly impossible unless you get a nice movie deal <laughs> to, to buy something here. Yes. And my fingers are crossed all the time. Oh God, mine too. <laughs> mine too. I keep hoping. I keep hoping. 
Uh, all right, well, I, I will come visit you in your bat cave because <laughs> I, I want to see the giant penny and the big dinosaur. But uh, yes. so. <laughs> we'll deck it out for you. Nice, nice. Uh, so let's talk about writing. Um, you and I, we, we've both written several books, and you would think it gets easier, but somehow it doesn't. It does not. <laughs> What's that all about? Yeah, I, you know, I, every time I sit down to write a new book, I think, oh, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I mean, I really, I sat down to write my 10th book a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I felt as lost as day one. I just, I, some books I've outlined, some books I haven't, um, some books I've changed all the way in the middle. Sometimes I knew exactly what was going to happen from beginning to end, which is a lovely feeling and has only happened one time actually, (laughs) but that was beautiful and I wish I could recreate it. And I just think... I think I forget who said this, but someone on Twitter said every book teaches you how to write that book. Yeah, it is not helpful for the future. No, it isn't. It isn't. And, and you know, every book has its own needs, and every book works a different way. So yeah, like you can outline one book and it'll work great, and then the next one an outline is useless. But you keep trying to outline it because you're like, oh, it worked so well last time. But it just doesn't matter. I, I think it's funny that you said you sat down and you started to write, and you got nowhere you know, right away, what happens to me is I sit down and I'm very cocky and confident and I'm like, I got this. And then about five pages in, I'm like, Oh crap. And, and, and I, and just everything falls apart and I have no idea what I'm doing, even though I know like how it's going to end. Cause I, I never start to write a book until I know how it's going to end. It doesn't matter. Like, because you're so far away from that, that it just doesn't matter that, you know, um, what, what, what the hell is wrong with us? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, when I keep trying to look for platitudes that help and little phrases that get me out of my own head. But, and actually the other day, I think Morgan Matson posted something about how each book is the, each first draft is you telling yourself the story. Mm. And that took a little bit of pressure off my first draft, yeah. to be honest. Like I thought, Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not showing this to anyone else at this stage. I just need to tell myself the story that I already sort of know in my head, but I need to tell it to myself right. officially on paper. Right. And I don't have to show it to anyone else in that way. I can just do this really messy draft where I tell myself the story. And that's actually helped me a lot in the last few weeks. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago about how one of the problems I have with revision is that I get to a point with the book where I'm like, okay, this works. Like I, 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 I was wondering, could I tell the story? And I've told this story. I'm done. Like, why do I have to do anything? Like it works. I got from A to B I'm done. It works. And I, I, what, what you just said might be a more elegant way of putting that, that, that I've told myself the story mm-hmm. and it seems great. So what the hell do I care anymore? Like, I don't care about anybody else. Um, once again, I'm saying things that make me look <laughs> horrible on this show, but that's what I do. Um, but that that could be it. it, it it's, a, it's a difficult thing. And, and I guess maybe the process of revision is figuring out ways to uh, to tweak what you've already done so that other people get it. Um, which is tough because you sort of have to put yourself in that in the place of those other people. And, you know, I know on, on the book that I'm working on right now, there was a there's a place where I make a very obscure literary joke. I mean... It's not the sort of thing most people are going to get. Right. And the copy editor was like, I, I don't understand this. Like, what are you saying here? I, I, I get that it's supposed to be funny, but I don't know why. And there's this part of me that's like, well, if I explain it, then it's not funny anymore. If I don't explain it, are 
people like I would be okay with people going, all right, I get that that's funny, but I don't know why. Right. I wouldn't be okay with people just stopping and being puzzled. Right. And I don't, so I don't know what to do with this bit. Uh, maybe I should just take it out, but I don't want to cause I really like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, do you ever run into stuff like that? You no, know, it's funny. I, with the revision process coming from magazines, I think gave me a different perspective on that because uh, writing a magazine article, I mean, when you write for magazines, you're on staff. When you write books, you're the talent. Yeah. So magazines, you are a worker bee and you are going to get red ink all over that thousand words that you just wrote. Yeah. And you are going to make every single change that anyone suggests. You've got, especially in the beginning, you've got three top editors on top of you with different colored pens. You get back yep. a rainbow of scribbles and you make every single change and you smile and hand it back to them. Even the ones that contradict each other. You make totally. them anyway, yeah. Yeah. And so I think when I got back my first revision letter for a book... I was surprised by how delicate it was and how there were a lot of like, would you consider changing this word? Question mark. Right. And I was like, of course I would consider changing that word. If you don't like that word, what word would you like it to be? Or shall I think of a list of words that you might choose from? I mean, really, I felt it was a totally different experience for someone to be respecting what I had put on the page and nudging it into a different shape right. versus like just scratching flat it into out a saying, yeah. yeah. And so... I have always been pretty, I think in the beginning, probably I was too accepting of all edits and I never pushed back on anything. And now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, you know, like I, I appreciate you asking this question, but I think the way that I did it works and here's why. And I'll go back and forth a little. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to, that's what was going to be my next question is when you don't do a suggestion, do you feel like you have to defend it? Because that's how that's how I feel. Like I feel like if I don't take a suggestion that the editor has given me, I have to explain why. And and to this day, I'm not sure. Like I've had five different editors, and I've done like 15 different books. To this day, I don't know if they care or not. You know, like editors are really busy people. Yeah. Like they have a lot going on. They're not, you know, as much as we wish it were the case, they're not just working on our books. They're working on other people's books. Right. Those people don't matter nearly as much, but they're still there. <laughs> and, and so like, there's a part of me that's like, do they care about my rationale for not doing this? Or are they just like, whatever, uh, you didn't do it. I don't care. Whatever. You know, I, I, I don't know. And I know that at least one of my editors listens to this show. So maybe she'll drop me a text at some point and tell me, because I, I don't know if it's just like a Catholic Jewish thing or what, but like I feel guilty because I'm like, Oh, she read the book and she took the time to come up with this idea and to make this suggestion. And I didn't like it. There's nothing wrong with it, but I prefer my way because, and I just feel beholden to tell her that so that she doesn't think that I'm sitting here going, yeah, right. Screw you. You know, and because that's not what I'm doing at all. Yeah. No, absolutely. So you feel the same way. I feel the same way, and I'm not Catholic or Jewish, but I do have like a people pleasing good girl <laughs> complex, and I and I feel the same way. And I think it probably varies from instance to instance whether they care what you do or not. Yeah. But I also think if you don't do it, and they do care a lot, they'll come back to you and say, "Huh, was there a reason you didn't want to make this change?" Right. I mean. I had an editor tell me once, and and I think as she was saying it, she realized she shouldn't be saying this, but she said, you know, we have a policy here that if we feel very strongly about something, we will ask you three times to change it. Hmm. And if you haven't changed it by the third time, then we'll let it go. And... I'm, and, you know, I think she could tell she shouldn't have said that because now she's like, oh, now he knows just to wait me out. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, 
<laughs> Although, honestly, I don't think I would be able to keep track of... I mean, there's so many things they, they ask about. Yeah. I don't think I could keep track of how many times has she asked me for this. Uh, but I thought that was very interesting, that there's sort of a, a policy on that, you know? Because it is a, a, it's a weird... It's a weird dynamic between author and editor, isn't it? I mean, like, I remember when I was writing Boy Toy, my dad said to me, you know, I told him what the book was about and it was sort of explicit and blah, blah, blah. My dad goes, oh, your editor's going to let you do that? And I said, let me do it? It's my book. <laughs> like, she can't, like, literally, you know, the only weapon she has in her arsenal ultimately is to say, we won't publish this. Right. And nobody wants to go to the nuclear option, obviously. Um, but I'm like, it's not a question of let. Like, we have a relationship where we sort of trust each other and we sort of go back and forth and figure out nuance and, and all. I mean, do you, again, coming from magazines, like, yes, your editor lets you or doesn't let you do something. Yeah. Was it a weird adjustment for you to go to a world where you're more of an equal? Because it is your name on the book. It's your book. Yes. And I think I still bow too much to what the editor says. I mean, I still feel like we have this, a magazine relationship. That's my editor. Right. They tell me how to make things better. And I don't feel equal. Is that strange? Hmm. I guess it is a little strange. But I mean, it's okay. like if you agree with the suggestions, there's nothing wrong yeah. with incorporating them. It, it only comes when, when, you, when you disagree, you know? Yes. And I haven't had that happen very often. Um, Sometimes I have though. And I think I just felt obligated to do what they, they wanted me to do, um, which I sort of regret, uh, honestly, but it's interesting because the last book that I wrote, which is my middle grade that's coming out next summer. I wrote, it's called, let's pretend we never met. We never met. And comes out next summer. Comes okay. out summer seventeen. With is it up Collins. for pre-order yet? It is not. Oh, uh, I, I would put a link in the show notes. You'd get the massive uh, uh, writing in real life bump. I need that uptick. Get like two or three copies pre-ordered. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, it's that's the only book that I've ever finished completely before selling. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that really? was a different experience. Huh. And so did you feel more proprietary about it? Well, what I felt was I loved doing it that way, even though it. It feels like a risk because what if someone doesn't buy it and you just spend all this time working on it? Um, But I also felt like if someone did buy it, they would know what they were buying. They would like what they were buying, maybe even love because, you know, nobody wants to acquire things that they don't love. And that we would enter the relationship in complete understanding of the project we were working on together. And that felt really good as opposed to, I'd always gone out on proposal. And I think part of that was my magazine experience, which was, I'm not precious about my writing. I want to know that I'm going to get paid for what I'm doing, you know? And so I would do a proposal and a few chapters and then get the deal and then finish it. But that often led to a little bit of like, oh, I thought we were going this way and we're going this way. Because okay, things change okay. while you're writing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even if you tell them the full outline, there can still be some shifts. Yeah. So, so it was nice to have that done and feel relaxed about it. It was also nice, honestly, to just have something go pretty much straight into copy edits and think, oh, it's done. Right. Right. <laughs> that was a good feeling too. That there was no feeling. deadline with it. It was just done. It was just finished. Yeah. 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 So have you ever finished a complete manuscript before selling it? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because while you were talking about that, I was wonder. I was like, oh, I've done most of mine that way, but I, but I actually haven't. I, I, I have this idea, this romantic notion in my head that I write everything and then sell it, but that's not true because 
my first two books were a two book deal. So I wrote the first one completely, but the second one, they didn't know what it was when they bought it. Cause it was a two book deal. I didn't even know what it was yet. I hadn't figured it out yet. Right. Um, and then, so then my third book I wrote completely. And then that was another two book deal. And then, and then there was my graphic novel, which was on proposal. Arch, the arch villain series was on proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wolverine book, they came to me. <laughs> Uh, I Hunt Killers was on proposal, and then there were all the other books and the prequels and all that stuff. Right. Um, the Secret Sea, which comes out in August, that was on proposal. Yeah. So, and then Bang, I wrote entirely. So, I've only really written and completely and sold three books. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, I have this idea in my head that I don't... That's what I do. That I don't sell on proposal. Right. But apparently, that's who I am. Um, this <laughs> I is like this is like wrecking my mental self-image now, because I really thought that, that I wrote complete books and then sold complete books. But apparently, I do not do that. Well, I think a lot of authors, once you get started, you kind of do it that way on proposal, because you have it's, a relationship, you're talking back and forth. And- but I also, I understand what you were saying before, because, you know... You know, my agent once said to me, like, you get a better deal if you come to them with a complete book because they can see the whole thing and they don't have to have in the back of their mind. It sounds great, but what if he screws the pooch, you know? And so there's this part of me that's like, oh, then if that's how it works, I always want to write full books. But I guess I don't do that. Well, the reality is it takes longer. Yeah. Um, you and know, it, like you said, it's a risk. It's, it's a, a risk. big risk. I mean, we, we have books published, but we're not sure yeah. that every time. Well, and I wrote um, uh, Unsold, my, my adult novel. Right. I completely wrote that from start to finish. And we went to a bunch of different adult publishers and they were, you know, some of them were just like, we don't like it. That's fine. And But a lot were like, hey, it's really cool, but we just have no idea how you sell something like this. And so I ended up self-publishing it as an experiment, which was fun and fine. And I'm actually glad that it worked out that way. But yeah, that was definitely a risk. Yeah, it is. And the other thing, though, about a full book is that they can they can figure out when it's coming out and the marketing and where it fits in with that list. Right. And they know that it's done. So they yeah. don't have to say, well, if they don't meet their deadline or they, right. you know, when you give them a proposal, they don't necessarily have to slot you in for a, for a publication date. That's and true. That can be its own. Because they're waiting to see when you're going to finish it, what yes. it's going to look like. There's also, there's also, though, with the proposal, it can go both ways. And I know that there was one book that I sold on proposal where I was sort of uncertain about it. And this editor said, you know what? I believe in you. Let's do this. And, uh, and I thought to myself, wow, I really want to knock this out of the park because this person believed in me. And I wasn't sure I believed in myself and, and I wrote it and I turned it in and she was so ecstatic. She was like, this is so much better than I could have imagined. Like you, you just, you Uh, did a wonderful job. And I was like, Wow, that's that's a great <laughs> feeling, and I certainly wouldn't have gotten that feeling if I'd written it and then given it to her. Right. You know, so that was nice. Yeah, that, that, was that nice. is a good feeling. Yeah. So, can we talk quickly about numbers? Sure. Because we deal in words, but mm-hmm. numbers sort of define our careers. And I don't know if you are obsessed with things like your uh, your Amazon ratings on your books. <laughs> I'm not talking about rankings because looking at your ranking is is the the shortcut to madness. But just like What's your star average on a book? You know, like, oh, I'm at four and a half. Oh, no, I'm at four and a quarter now. What happened? Um, I was on Goodreads one day, which is a huge mistake. Yes, no, no insult. No insult intended to those of you who are on Goodreads and love it. But as an author, it's a bad, bad idea to go to Painful. Goodreads. I stumbled upon something on Goodreads. I don't know if you've seen this or not. They have an overall author ranking number. 
where they average the ratings on all of your books. And so, like, I have been able in the past to look at, you know, there are certain books of mine that rank much better than others. Like, Boy Toy is always right up there, close to five. Um, I Hunt Killers is always right up there, close to five. Uh, but then there are certain books that just didn't find the right audience, and they're, you know, they're down in the three and a half range, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm always able to go, okay, that book just didn't find its audience. I'm going to pay attention to these books over here. But then Goodreads averages it all together. Oh. And I, I just stumbled on this. I don't even know where it is anymore because I dare okay. not go back. I just accidentally clicked on this. It's like, you know, Barry Liga, author rating, and no, a, and a number next oh, to A number no. next to my name telling me my worth as a human being in, in a number. And I had no idea about that, and I really wish was, I still didn't. I am so sorry. It was the most horrifying existential experience of my life. <laughs> I, I just, I was like, wait, what? 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 I, I, help me here. Like, what the hell? How should we deal with this stuff? That, first of all, is that crazy? And second of all, how should we deal with this stuff? I mean, I think the best way to deal is, like, don't look. Yeah. I mean, but of course, it's impossible. And there are days when, and it's it's often the days when you're not getting your writing done and you're feeling kind of gloomy anyway. And you're, like, typing around on the internet and you're like well, let me just check, which is the worst idea ever. It just slides you further into the darkness. Yeah. And because, you know, there's always someone who didn't like it. There's always someone who has the one star and there's always, and half the time it's someone who didn't read it, but it's just like, this doesn't look good. Right. Right. (laughs) There's always those one stars, which I'm like, come on. Or before the book has even come out. Yes. That's my favorite. That's my, the book hasn't even come out yet. And somebody (laughs) has already given it one star because they don't like the title. Right. Or the cover. Or or, the cover. yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah. So I think I mean, clearly, the best thing to do is never to look, and that's... But that's not going to happen, because no, we're human. No, it's impossible. I mean, I don't know what to say. I have not found the answer to this problem, either. I, luckily, with two... Maybe maybe have another kid, because with two, <laughs> you just don't have time or space have time for that for stuff that in your head. You just yeah. don't. So, that could I, be your solution. That could be the solution. We may have to have another <laughs> child, so that... Uh, not because we want one. <laughs> no, no, to help you. Because it's not about that. It's all about. State. It's all about me. Yeah, it's about uh, that Goodreads ranking that you never right, want to see again. Right. I just. I don't know. I found that shocking that that exists. I can't imagine who thought that was a good idea. Like, I have an idea. <laughs> Let's. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just a number that they have, and they're like, right. "Here's they're a like, new equation." Hey, it's data. Look, table. it's yep. data. Yep. Just oh, oh my god! Painful. I mean, even Amazon doesn't do that to you. No, you know, well, as far as I know, as far as I mean, Goodreads is <laughs> owned by Amazon, but uh, but yeah, that's sort of maddening. I mean, but do you? I mean, do you occasionally just go look at 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 the overall ranking or just the number of reviews? Like, oh, how many reviews do I have? Am I up to you know? Am I up to fifty? Am I up to sixty? Sure, every yeah. once in a while I do, and and the truth is that I really try to only look when something good is happening. Oh, like that's right smart. now, my summer romance book, Unbreak My Heart, is on sale for one ninety nine hey. across e reader platforms. How long will that be going on? I believe it's going on through the end of June, which hey. is really exciting. That's great, everybody. We will put a link in the show notes. Fantastic. Go read Unbreak My Heart. Yes. Skip coffee one day. One day. I mean, a dollar ninety nine. I mean, like. <laughs> I, you know, somebody somebody posted a, a cartoon once, I think, or it was just a, a quote, and I retweeted it. It was something like, you know, you'll spend, 
you know, $5 on a gift bag and tissue paper for a gift, but complain that the book costs $5. Yeah. yeah, Think about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great deal. So, but I, so I honestly, I've been checking that one more because I'm curious to see what the sale pricing is doing for the numbers and if I'm getting more reviews and I am. And so that's kind of a positive way to look at it. And so I try to only look when I kind of know there's going to be some good news. That's very smart. And then I just take that and run with it. Like I, I remember when my first book was reviewed in USA Today, I made a point of going to Amazon and actually, for once, looking at my ranking, yeah. not not my ratings, my oh, actual yeah. ranking, and just watched it shoot up very briefly for a very brief moment in time. It shot up. Oh, yeah. I have um, a screenshot of yeah. me at, like, number three. Oh, I should have done that. Yeah, in between, like, John Green screenshot. and Lauren Oliver, and yeah. I was just like, yes! Yeah. But so, you know, that's like I did the same. I did the same thing with uh, when Peter was on TV to promote After the Red Rain. Like, for this... For like six hours, like the book just shot up yeah. in the rankings, and I was like, "Yes!" <laughs> but then it comes back down to earth because <laughs> such is the way of all things. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, to wrap up, do you have any uh, any books to recommend or anything you're reading right now that you would like to talk about? I do. It's funny. So I'm reading two YA's right now. Okay. Uh, one I'm reading in the daytime because at night um, I am really trying to stay on my e-reader. I so at night I'm reading a book called What We Saw by Aaron Hartzler. It came okay. out a couple years ago and it's really excellent. There is a a lovely romance happening and there's also a huge sense of dread building about something that has already happened and I cool. really love that tension. Um, it's mysterious. It's it's just full of it's full of tension and I love it. Um, the other book that I'm reading in the daytime is uh, Siobhan Vivian's The Last Boy and Girl in the World, which uh, came yes. out a couple weeks ago. Yep. And it is so layered and complicated and full of... I mean, it, it's got romance. It has family stuff. It has political stuff. It has um, a lot of atmospheric weather stuff um, because it's about a town like that... Like, literally, is, it rains? Yes, it rains a lot. There's, it's about a town that's it's Blade suffering Runner. a flood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> suffering from a flood flooding situation um and so they're having their last their last moments in their hometown and it's it's i can't put it down it's really really a wonderful book cool uh i'm gonna recommend i'm gonna recommend the book when friendship followed me home by Paul Griffin, people who have listened to the show Love for a long Paul time know the and name Paul, Paul Griffin. Griffin. I talk about him a lot. We're both good friends of his, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he has a new book out. Uh, it actually is coming out a couple days after this show airs, so please go buy it. When Friendship Followed Me Home, it's Paul's first middle grade. It is terrific, as is everything that he writes. Uh, don't take my word for it. PW picked it as like book of the one of the books of the oh, summer. Right. Amazon picked it as one of the books of the summer. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. Everybody's just gushing about this book. Um, you should go read it, you know, so that you can be part of the in crowd and talk about it. It's it's a really great book. So, uh, when friendship followed me home. Very cool. I'm gonna get that right away. Yeah. So that's it for this week. Morgan will be back next week. Melissa, thank you so much for standing in. Thanks for having me. This was so exciting. Cool. Uh, please, everybody, visit us on writinginreallife.com. Give us feedback. Tell us what you would like us to talk about. Look at our show notes. Follow us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And uh, we were talking about stars and rankings and stuff. So go to iTunes. Give us some stars. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Feed the beast. Thank you very much. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.